eighth consecutive year attending this conference and my fifth year speaking. So I thank you for the privilege, Pastors Robinson and Daniel. It's always my joy to be here and be able to fellowship with everybody and just enjoy good times in the Word of God. Turn with me in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and we're going to hone in on just one verse for right now. Chapter 5, verse 24, and if you prefer to read it on the screen, well, I'll put it up there as well, using the New King James on the overhead here. Well, that's assuming we can get our technology to work. You think the television went off? go. Aha. John 5, 24. Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. I have a couple of questions for you to consider. Is eternal life an end in itself? Or is it a means to an end? I think our traditional understanding suggests that it is an end in itself, somewhat like a ticket to heaven. You either have it or you don't. But I don't think that's entirely correct. From my intensive study of the scriptures on this point, I believe eternal life is both the means to an end and, in some respects, the end itself. It's not either or, it's both and. Now, if I've totally confused you, bear with me. <laughs> and I will do my best to clear it up during the course of the message. I have titled the message, A Primer on Eternal Life. Let's take another look at the verse. Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment but has passed from death into life notice the phrase here's my word it literally means understands it's not just listening but it's comprehending and then the word believes is the idea of becoming convinced of its truth it's very simple what truth that God sent Jesus to offer eternal life to all who will believe him for it. Anyone who understands the gospel message and believes has everlasting life. In other words, anyone who believes that Jesus offers eternal life to those who believe him for it, they're saved. They receive eternal life. But here's where the rub comes in. Ever since the Reformation, Christians have been led to believe that eternal life is endless life in heaven. But that's not correct. Unfortunately, our thinking has been tainted. In fact, as I'm going to demonstrate to you this evening, the Greek word ion, which is a noun, is translated age, and the Greek word ionius, adjective, translated eternal and everlasting, they do not mean endless. 
Now that may surprise you a little book, uh, a little bit, but I want you to think through all of this as I give supporting evidence this evening, and I want to challenge you to think a little bit outside the box. Several good books have been written on the subject, but if you want to read an excellent scholarly treatment of the subject of eternal life, I would recommend to you this one, the Greek word ion, Ionius, translated everlasting, eternal, in the Holy Bible, shown to denote limited duration. They use long titles in the 19th century. By John Wesley Hansen, written in 1875. In the book, Hansen demonstrates conclusively that the Greek words ion, which is the noun, and Ionius, the adjective, never meant endless in etymology, that's sort of the evolution of the word through time, how it was used over the centuries, in ancient lexicography, or ancient dictionary definitions, Old Testament Hebrew, New Testament Greek, even the Greek classics, Jewish Greek usage, which would be the Septuagint, or even in usage by the early church fathers. So what we're saying here is that the two Greek words in the New Testament, ion and ionius, which are typically translated age or world sometimes, and eternal or everlasting, they do not mean eternal or everlasting. Now guess who was the first one to suggest that these Greek words ion, ion and ionius mean endless? Anybody want to guess? Yes, I think I heard it. Augustine. He was the father of Roman Catholicism, of sorts, theologically. Hailed by the Reformers, revered by many Calvinists and Reformed theologians even in our day. Well, he passed it on to the Reformers. And then the English Bible translations, because our English Bible comes out of the Reformation, of course, picked up the meaning eternal and everlasting, and now that meaning, which to us conveys the idea of endlessness, is well established in our Christian psyche, our way of thinking. So every time in the Bible that we read eternal or everlasting, we're typically thinking that which is endless. But what I'm suggesting to you is that is not what the Greek words mean. And for that matter, the Hebrew as well, the comparable Hebrew word which is translated in the Septuagint the same way, ion and ionionius. If you turn to modern Greek lexicons to find the definition of the words eternal and everlasting, you're going to inevitably, inevitably discover that those words are defined as endless. But unfortunately, Reformation theology has pervaded much of our thinking in the last few hundred years, and especially so with the meanings of the words eternal and everlasting. And I might throw this in as a little aside, also the word hell. If you notice in your Bible, uh, they use the word hell in most English translations, and that's not the word used in the original Greek. So why they tried to interpret rather than just translate, or better yet, transliterate, I don't know. I think theological considerations came into play in the Reformation. Well, that is why it's so important to study the original meanings of these words, not from modern lexicons, but at the time the Bible was written. 
And Hansen, the author I mentioned earlier, he does a great job of that, very thorough uh, treatise on the subject. And that being said, what is the correct meaning then of these Greek words, ion and ionius? Well, let me illustrate for you from the eminent Greek scholar Marvin Vincent, who is widely recognized. This is taken from Marvin Vincent's Word Studies in the New Testament, 1887, from specifically his note on 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 9. I'm going to give you several slides here where I quote Vincent, so we're going to let the Greek experts tell us what the words mean. Vincent says, ion, transliterated eon, is a period of time of longer or shorter duration, having a beginning and an end and complete in itself. Well, that's straightforward. Next paragraph. Ion always carries the notion of time and not of eternity. It always means a period of time. It does not mean something endless or everlasting. <coughs> The adjective Ionius, in like manner, carries the idea of time. Neither the noun nor the adjective in themselves carry the sense of endless or everlasting. Both the noun and the adjective are applied to limited periods. And let me just put in a parenthesis here. Sometimes folks who are commenting on the scriptures will suggest that the word ion does mean age, but then they'll say Ionius means everlasting or eternal. Well, think that through. The adjective never means something different than the noun. The adjective is descriptive of the noun. So it has to mean age-enduring or age-lasting. He goes on to say, this is Vincent now, zoe ionius, or eternal life, which occurs 42 times in the New Testament, but not in the Septuagint, is not endless life, but life pertaining to a certain age or eon, or continuing during that eon. Life may be endless. The life in union with Christ is endless, but the fact is not expressed by Ionius. Thus, while Ionius carries the idea of time, though not of endlessness, there belongs to it also more or less a sense of quality. Its character is ethical rather than mathematical. Final slide from Vincent. The deepest significance of the life beyond time lies not in endlessness, but in the moral quality of the eon into which the life passes. Now, I don't know if you caught all of that. Maybe you have to mull it over and go do your own homework. But essentially, the Greek experts, if they're honest, are telling us that the words ion and ionius do not mean endless and should never have been translated eternal and everlasting in the Bible. Well, that throws a curveball at us. What's the impact of all this? We're going to get to that. But first, let me give you the best translation. For ion, the noun, is age. And for ionius, the adjective is age-lasting or age-enduring or something of that nature. The idea is having vibrant life, not only in this age, but also in the millennial age to come. Jesus referred to it as abundant life. Young's literal translation, and I think you all recognize the name Robert Young, who did the analytical concordance of the Bible. Well, he also did a literal New Testament translation. In fact, I think uh, Lewis on his table has the whole Bible 
uh, Young's literal translation. It's a little clunky because it's so literal word for word that it doesn't have the nice poetic flow and reading of a King James or New King James, something like that. But it is a very literal translation. Well, Young refers to eternal life throughout his translation as life age-during. Well, I warned you that his translation is a little clunky. Weymouth, in his Bible translation, refers to eternal life as life for the ages. Some of you are familiar with the commentator N.T. Wright. He refers to eternal life as the life of God's coming age. Now, why do I take all this time to spell this out? Because our thinking is messed up thanks to the Reformation. We're programmed to think that eternal life is a ticket to heaven, where we're just going to dwell forever and ever endlessly, and there's nothing that we need to do now to prepare for that eternal blissful state. That's really the way most Christians think. And that's erroneous. Zoe Ionius, or eternal life, life eternal, which is really age-lasting life, is not about quantity of life, living forever in heaven. Rather, it's about quality of life, here and now, that leads to quality of life in the coming kingdom. Now let's briefly examine eternal life as an end in itself. And then let's spend even more time on eternal life as a means to an end, so that you see where I was going with my initial questions. In our text that we started with, John 5, 24, we find two benefits of age-lasting life. Let's look again at the verse. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but is passed from death into life. There are two benefits of age-lasting life according to this verse. What is the first benefit of age-lasting life? Well, it's passing from death to life. Now, what does that mean? Our minds, again, are geared to think that this means our future destiny changes from hell to heaven. But that's not actually what these words mean. They mean that you are no longer separated from God, for death is separation from God. They mean that you are now in vital communion with God. Ah, but not all believers have regular vital communion with God, do they? What if you don't appropriate your age-lasting life? Well, then you're going to fall back into spiritual deadness. That doesn't mean you're going to lose your eternal life because you've believed on Jesus for eternal life or age-lasting life. But it does mean that you'll dry up and wither like the branches in John chapter 15 that do not produce fruit. They do not continue abiding in the vine and they're worthless and they're just going to be burned. And I take that to be a reference to the burning at the judgment seat. In other words, your vital communion with Jesus will be empty if that's the case in your life. And we can demonstrate this from the Word of God, James chapter 1, verse 15. And I remind you that James wrote this book to believers. He said, When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Written to believers. Romans chapter 8, and verse 6. 
also to believers. For to be carnally minded is, what's the next word? Death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is an interesting study. I checked in the concordances, did a comprehensive study recently of the terms eternal life and everlasting life. Interestingly, those terms in total are used 45 times. Surprisingly, 25 of the 45 usages refer to the gift of eternal life. Speaking of how it's received by faith. But I say surprisingly because 20 of the 45 usages, or about 45%, speak of eternal life as involving works. Well, now we have a little conundrum, don't we? Let me give you some examples of this latter category of eternal life as involving works. Romans 2, 6, and 7. Who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Well, that sounds like eternal life is according to works in this verse. Romans 6, 22. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. John 6, 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Labor is work. Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 1 Timothy 6, and verse 12, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Wait a minute, Timothy already had eternal life. Paul tells him, lay hold on it. John 12, 25. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal, or eternal life. And of course, we must not forget the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, and for that matter, it's in all three synoptic gospels. He comes to Jesus. And he asked, Sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit life for the ages? Jesus tells him to obey the law. Well, that's works. The man says, I have been obeying the law. Jesus never challenges him on that. Says, you're a liar, you haven't been. He never says that. But then Jesus does tell this ruler, he's missing one thing. If he wants to inherit the, the eternal life or the age-lasting life, then he must sell everything and give it away to the poor. See, that man had a problem. He was like American Christians. He was attached to his stuff. And he wasn't a good disciple because of it. And I fear a lot of American Christians are the same way. Well... That's how you inherit eternal life, according to Jesus. How do we reconcile this seeming conflict between eternal life as a gift and eternal life as a reward for works? Well, you know, your pastors have taught you, I'm sure, that the gift of eternal or age-lasting life is free to those who believe. 
If you believe, you pass from death to life. But we also have to consider that the reward of eternal or age-lasting life is for those who do good works. So you have the gift of eternal life and you have the reward of eternal life. If you are appropriating your age-lasting life now, then you're spiritually alive and one day you will enjoy the kingdom to the fullest extent. But if you're not appropriating your age-lasting life now, then you're spiritually dead. And you're never going to enjoy kingdom life. Instead, you're going to have regrets. You'll weep and gnash your teeth. The Bible tells us so. Now that brings me to the second benefit of age-lasting life. The first, you pass from death to life. The second is impunity from judgment. Does this mean, though, well, the, the Bible says shall not come into judgment. That's John 5, 24. Does this mean, though, that believers will never be judged? Well, no, of course not. You have to look at this statement in John 5, 24 in its context. And in the context, Jesus is saying in John 5, verses 28 and 29, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I'm sure you're all aware that Jesus will raise everyone on earth to face him in judgment. And the Bible speaks of two general resurrections. There's the resurrection of life for believers, and they will face him at the judgment seat of Christ. And then there's the resurrection of condemnation for unbelievers. And that will happen at the great white throne judgment. And these are both referred to in John 5, 28 and 29. Since believers have impunity from judgment, they will appear at the first judgment, not the second. Nevertheless, I remind you that the first judgment is also a judgment. It's just a judgment of a different nature. Now, I hope you'll understand where I'm coming from with this little cliche way of speaking here. But there will be good apples and bad apples at the judgment seat of Christ, but only apples. <laughs> at the judgment seat, the fire will try every man's work of what sort it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Most Christians think that the judgment seat of Christ is all positive. It's going to be hunky-dory, all the rewards that are going to be given out. And maybe some will get more rewards than other people, but it's going to be a very happy, happy time. But what's often missed is that there's also recompense for bad behavior at the judgment seat of Christ. That's the bad apples. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Notice also Colossians 3, 23 through 25. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. Well, that tells us that there's going to be negative aspects of the judgment seat. Thankfully, believers have immunity from the great white throne judgment, but we know conclusively that all believers will face Jesus in judgment at the judgment seat of Christ. No surprise there. 
At least for us, we've been taught in this. But you'd be surprised how ignorant mainstream Christianity is of this truth. Now let me try to illustrate what we've, what we've taught thus far, and then we're going to move into another realm here. And this is just an illustration, a human illustration, and sometimes human illustrations, you know, they're, they're not perfect. But maybe this will help you. It helps me. I think eternal life or age-lasting life is kind of like a dimmer switch. Anybody have a dimmer switch in your home? Okay, we have one in our home. Well, you know, the switch must first be turned on so that there's power to the light fixture, resulting in usually just a teeny little bit of light so that you know the fixture's on. If the switch is off, nothing is happening. So here's a believer. There's a light switch on. The dimmer switch is on, but it's not putting out much light. The light is very dim. It's minuscule. It demonstrates, nonetheless, that that light fixture is connected to the power. The branch is connected to the vine. But it's only as the dimmer switches increase that the light shines more and more brightly. And life for the ages, eternal life is like that. When you believe on Jesus for eternal life, you're connected to the power source. The branch is connected to the vine. And with that come some tremendous benefits. We looked at two today in the verse, John 5, 24. You pass from death to life, and you're given impunity from judgment. But before the light can go brighter, grow brighter, you must draw upon your age-lasting life. Then the dimmer switch can be increased so that the light shines more brightly. And to the extent that you as a believer continue to draw upon his life in your life, your light will continue to shine brighter and you will reflect his image to the world. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Perhaps that's why Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So I wonder, are you living out your age-lasting life? Is the dimmer switch all the way up? Or is your dimmer switch all the way down? Because you're not living out your age-lasting life and you're just barely connected to the power source, so to speak. You know, the light of every Christian ought to be shining more and more brightly year by year. I hope you're not growing more dim and spiritually dead. Well, I think then you can understand where I'm going with this thus far. Eternal or age-lasting life is really not about getting a ticket to heaven, kicking your feet up and saying, I don't have to do anything anymore. I'm just going to enjoy endless, blissful life. No, eternal life is about getting the life of Jesus now. Accessing that life and thereby qualifying to live in the coming kingdom age as a co-ruler with him, as his bride and co-ruler. Now, perhaps you're wondering, Pastor Hollingsworth, what difference does this all make? Now think with me, bear with me. You're wondering what difference does this all make? Isn't this just a shell game, a semantics game? And perhaps implied in that question is this question. Don't eternal and age-lasting mean essentially the same thing? 
How does it help me to know that eternal and everlasting should have been translated age-lasting? Those are good questions, to which I'm going to give four answers. And this is where we're really going to wrestle with this truth and why it's so important. I've given you the foundation, now we're going to build upon it. Let's sum up all of those questions I just asked with this one question to guide us in our four points. What difference does it make to translate ion as age and ionius as age-lasting? Let me give you four answers. Number one, the focus of the entire Bible is on ages, not eternity. Now that point might startle you, but I can support it biblically. As we will go on, you shall see. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. God, who at sundry times, or various times, and in various ways, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, Jesus, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Now, if you know the Greek language, or you're able to pull out a concordance and look up that word worlds, it's the Greek word ion, and it's in the plural. It literally means ages. So don't miss this. Jesus created the ages. It's important to understand that. The Bible says it. He did not merely create the heavens and the earth, and you and me, and the animals, and everything in it, though that's very important. He created the ages. And the Bible says that specifically. That means that the ages did not exist before time. They are a function of time. Ages are God's way of segmenting time. And by the way, that's not for his benefit. It's for ours. <laughs> he stands transcendent above time. But ages have nothing to do with eternity. Look at Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the worlds, and again, it's the Greek word ion, and it's in the plural. By faith, we understand that the ages were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Jesus created the ages, and he created them for our benefit. The focus of the entire Bible is on the ages, not on eternity. And we assume this by faith, based on Hebrews 11.3. Now, I do want to say that God is eternal. Nobody's going to argue that. But if he wanted to convey the idea of eternal with respect to man, he could have used the Greek word idios instead of ionius. Idios does mean eternal or endless. And it is used that way in the scriptures one time of God. And here's the verse, Romans 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Thus, eternal is correctly translated eternal in this verse, but only in this verse. I should put in a caveat, there's one verse in the book of Jude, that also uses the word, but it uses it in a completely different sense. So we're not going to even talk about that. But this is the only place in the Bible where the word 
idios in the Greek is used, which literally means endless or eternal. If God wanted us to know that eternal life is endless, why didn't he use this word? He didn't. This is very important to grasp. All other uses of eternal in the New Testament, even with respect to God, are the Greek word ionius, which means age-lasting, and should have been translated that way. Now I say again, God is obviously eternal, he is endless, but catch this, this is really beautiful. The scriptures virtually always refer to God as ionius, age-lasting. Well, why do you suppose that is? Well, think with me. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now to the king eternal, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, or unto the ages of ages. This is literally to be translated according to Robertson and Vincent. Now to the king of the ages, be glory unto the ages of ages. Now again, ages of ages does not mean eternal. You can heap on a thousand ages, but it's still not eternal, as some have suggested. In just a moment, we're going to see the meaning of this term, but it's a time meaning, not an endless meaning. But here's the point. This is exciting. Jesus is the king of the ages. Yes, God is eternal. Yes, Jesus is eternal. But the scriptures virtually always refer to the Godhead as the God of the ages. Why? To demonstrate his sovereignty over the ages. He owns them. <laughs> he's not subject to time, but he created it. So he's the king of time, we might say. I think this is a fascinating way of thinking. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever, literally unto the ages of ages. It's not eternal, endless. It's time bound. Now that brings me to a quiz question, the time you've all been waiting for. I hope you study. This quiz is going to demonstrate what's, why it's so important to translate ion and ionius as age and age lasting. We learn from Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 11 that Jesus created the ages as the means of segmenting time. Okay, here's the quiz question, just one question. How many ages remain? No takers. <coughs> I'm glad you didn't answer because most people say one. And if you say that, I would have to go, Bang. and I like to do that. <laughs> but that's not the correct answer. According to the Bible, there are two ages remaining in the spectrum of time as created by Jesus. Because what we typically refer to as the eternal state in our theological statements is not eternity at all. It's an age. Bear with me. I know you're shocked. We'll demonstrate it from the scriptures. We refer to it as eternal or the eternal state because the words eternal and everlasting and forever have been mistranslated. And they're in our psyche. They're locked in. Kind of like 
Philip was talking about this morning. There are things that we have locked into our thinking. And we have to undo them by studying the scriptures and understanding what the Bible says, not what the Reformation theologians told us and what has been put down in some of the translations of scripture because of that. Well, I trust by now that our first point is abundantly clear. The focus of the entire Bible is on ages, not eternity. So much more can be said on this point, but I have to move onward. That brings me to our second point. What difference does it make to translate ion as age and ionius as age-lasting? Mistranslation results in eschatological errors. Now, eschatological is just a big word. If you're not familiar with it, it means future events. By mistranslating Ionius as endless, the focus is on eternity, not the ages. But as we saw in our first point, that's not the focus of the Bible. The focus of the Bible is the ages. So if we continue to think that the focus of the Bible is on endlessness, we become unbiblical, and it can affect our eschatology, our doctrine of future events. Should we be surprised that that happens? Well, no. If you're mistranslating scripture, you're going to have theological errors. This happens all the time. Now, what do I mean by errors, eschatological errors, future event errors? Well, one you're familiar with is amillennialism, which essentially teaches that there will not be a thousand-year literal reign of Christ. Instead, they say, the church age is the spiritual reign of Christ on earth, and whenever it ends, Christ will come the second time in judgment to usher in eternity, which they say is the new heavens and new earth. That's an eschatological error fueled in part by a misunderstanding of the words. Then, of course, there's post-millennialism, which teaches that the saints will usher in a millennial age, a golden age of victory, followed by the return of Christ and judgment and eternity. Once again, the new heavens and the new earth. For obvious reasons, post-millennialism is no longer that popular. <laughs> the world is too wicked, and it's an overly optimistic view. But there are still some who hold to it. Finally, there's premillennialism. We hold to that, which is a dispensational position that says Christ will return, and then he will establish a 1,000-year kingdom, followed by, and this is where I think even premillennialism has a little bit of error, followed by the eternal state, we say. I think that's incorrect. Now, some premillennialists make a modification to that model, and I am now one of them. I came to my position through study of the scriptures, and then I was excited after I came to my position to see that Clarence Larkin, a classic dispensationalist, takes the same position. Now, how many of you know who Clarence Larkin is? You've heard of him. Okay. If you've not heard of him, you need to go to Lewis Shuttle's table afterwards, and he has two big books of Clarence Larkin's dispensational charts. They are indispensable. They are valuable and helpful. You need to buy them. He's got two copies. I'm sure there's going to be a run on the bank after the service tonight. Well, let me tell you about Clarence Larkin, and then I'm going to show you some of his charts. Larkin lived from 1850 to 1924. He was a Baptist pastor for many years, but 
that followed an earlier career as a mechanical engineer and a professional draftsman. Ah, now you know why he did such wonderful charts. <laughs> Clarence Larkin became famous in our circles, our dispensational circles, for his teachings and writings on dispensationalism, and particularly for his detailed charts and Bible prophecy. And you can see them on the table out there. They're excellent. I discovered recently that Larkin also understood the concept of ages. Let me explain by using one of his charts. Now, if you're listening online, I would recommend that you download a copy of Clarence Larkin's chart entitled The Ages as Viewed from Different Standpoints. That's what I have on the wall behind me here. It's readily available on the web. His charts are downloadable nowadays. Those of you here in the audience, you can see the chart, but the print is quite small because I had to reduce the chart to fit the wall. Uh, but I'm going to read it as we go along, or at least certain aspects of it. Well, first, Larkin, at the top of this chart, portrays the ages as Israel viewed them. And they viewed, according to Larkin, the age of the law and the coming kingdom age. Now, you have to remember that in Old Testament times, the Jews didn't have the fullness of revelation like we do today. The fullness of revelation about the ages has been revealed by the apostles and Jesus himself. So we are at a historical advantage because of being in the New Testament era. Now notice on the chart that Larkin next portrays the ages as post-millennialists see them. And he was dealing with post-millennialism because in his day, by the way, most of his charts or a lot of his charts were done in 1919. That was 100 years ago. And I think Lewis even has the 100 year anniversary edition out there. But 100 years ago, post-millennialism was more of an issue. And they would say that after creation, there's an age of conscience, which ended with the flood, then the age of the law that essentially grows into an ever-expanding kingdom age. Then Christ comes the second time, as I said earlier, and he ushers in the eternal state. Amillennialists would view the ages somewhat similarly, but notice how a mistranslation regarding ages results in misinterpretation regarding eschatology. Next, Larkin portrays how premillennialists see the ages. Now, this is interesting because this is the one we are most familiar with. Some dispensationalists on the left side of this chart would hold to creative ages. Now, we're not going to get into that tonight, though it's a very interesting subject. We'll have to do it another time. But we definitely see, after the creation, the age of conscience, before the flood, the age of law, after the flood, the church age, which is the present age, followed by the return of Christ to establish the millennial age. Now, here's something I did not know, because it did not represent my views, and maybe not yours. According to Larkin, the premillennial view traditionally has considered the new heavens and new earth as an age, not as an eternal state. I didn't know that. I wasn't raised to believe that. But Larkin suggests through his charts that that was traditionally held by dispensationalists, that the new heavens and new earth is not the eternal state, it's an age, and he calls it the perfect age. Again, I didn't grow up in that stripe. I don't know if you did it or not. We've always held the position that the millennial kingdom is the final age. 
followed by the eternal state. But I would suggest that needs to change in our thinking, especially for me, <laughs> maybe you too. I now view the new heavens and new earth as an age. Time related with an end, not the eternal state. Bear with me, we're going somewhere with all of this. Finally, Larkin portrays how God sees the ages, and by that he means what the Bible teaches. While premillennialism is bounded by eternity on both sides of the ages, Larkin sees the biblical view as not bound by eternity at all, because that's not the focus of the Bible. Sure, there's an eternity out there somewhere, but that's not the focus of the Bible. In other words, we tend to focus on eternity past before the creation of the world and an eternity future after the millennial age so that eternity is the end result. But Larkin implies that's not the biblical view. And I agree with him. Instead, the ages created by Jesus are bound by, and he has this on his chart here, the Alpha, the beginning, and the end, which is Jesus himself. And I think Larkin's point is that the Bible is not eternity-focused at all. It's all about time segments focused on ages from start to finish. And with that, I have to agree. Now, that being the case, how many ages are yet to come? Not one. Two. And the Bible supports that. Ephesians 2.7, that in the ages to come, and it is plural in the Greek, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Well, what are the two ages to come? Well, of course, there's the millennial age. We're all familiar with that. But then there's the new heavens and new earth age, which Larkin calls the perfect age. Why does he call it that? Because of 2 Peter 3.13. We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The perfect age. Hebrews 1.8, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. That is, to the age of the age. It's not eternal. It has a beginning and an end, though the end is not specified in the Scriptures. How long is the final age, the perfect age? We don't know for sure. Now, we're going to go to another chart of Larkin's called the 7,000 years of human history. And I assume most of you are familiar with this. Sometimes we refer to the 6,000 years of man. And we are living, I believe, very near the end of the 6,000 years. Jesus could come literally at any moment. It's followed by a 7,000 year period, the millennial age, which is the Sabbath rest. And that's accurate, for there's great biblical symbolism in it. But that's not the final age. It's followed by an eighth day, if you will. The duration is unknown, but it's not eternal. It's an age, the age of the new heavens and new earth. Now, if we want to talk about this with respect to creation week, the eighth day could also be called the first day of the week. And what happened on the first day of the week? Jesus arose. It's the Lord's day. And for this reason, Larkin refers to it as the perfect age. It's at the close of the perfect age that I believe Jesus surrenders the kingdom to the Father, not at the close of the millennial age. 
Bear with me and I'll try to demonstrate why I believe this. First Corinthians 15, 24 says, then comes the end. When is the end? Well, as I said, I used to think it was the end of the millennium. Now I believe it's the end of the perfect age, the new heavens and new earth age. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's a profound statement. I would assume that includes the second death. Hmm, ponder that for a little bit. For he has put all things under his feet. Verse 28, now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Folks, this passage cannot be referring to the end of the millennium because it's only after the millennium that Jesus puts all enemies under his feet. Satan is not released until the millennium is over. The Bible says so. Revelation 20, verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, then Satan will be released from his prison. You know, I've read lots of things in prophecy books and even novels about the end times, and they all seem to talk about how that Satan will be released toward the end of the millennial reign. And it'll cause all the trouble, and Jesus will put it down, and it probably is the last couple hundred years of the millennium, and then, then, and then everything's over, then comes the end, and Jesus turns over the kingdom to the Father. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says Satan is released after the thousand years have expired. Now, given the way things take a lot of time to happen, haven't we seen that over the course of the ages? then undoubtedly Satan's rebellion is going to take some time to put together, maybe hundreds of years. We do know that Jesus will put down the rebellion, and then he's going to reign in righteousness before turning the kingdom over to the Father. Well, how long is he going to reign? We don't know. But Larkin has an idea that intrigues me. He says it will last, that is, the new heavens, new earth age, or the perfect age will last at least a thousand generations which he says is 33,000 years. You say, well, where did he get that from? Did he just pull out of a hat? No, Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And I want you to think about something. Have the Jewish people loved him and keep his commandments up till now? No, it's been a miserable failure. But they will in the future. And then God says he will love them and keep his promise to them for a thousand generations. That's time bound. Interestingly, I looked this up on the internet. Modern science says that a generation is anywhere between 31 and 38 years. Larkin takes 33. Maybe it has some biblical significance. I don't know. And he multiplies it by a thousand generations and says there's 33,000 years as a minimum. He doesn't know. He's not set in an exact time. But here's the point. The Bible just doesn't speak about eternity. It speaks only of the ages, with the perfect age being the final age. Then comes the end. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Could this be, that is, not the end of the millennium, 
but the end of the perfect age, could that, that be the point at which Philippians 2 is fulfilled? You say, what do you mean Philippians 2? Verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. And notice what it says. Of those in heaven, of those on earth, of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. <laughs> this is exciting stuff. Now bear with me, we have a little ways to go. We go now to another Larkin chart entitled Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. This one has been redrawn in color. I kind of like that. And on the right side, we see two final ages bound together. I'm going to make that larger for you to see. I think that's a little better. Notice on the chart, these are the two ages at the right end of the chart, the end of time, the ages that haven't happened yet. Larkin has included the kingdom age, or the millennial age, and the perfect age, and he's tied them together. And he's labeled them the ages, or the age of ages. And this is the culmination of history. And the term age of ages is not invented by Larkin. It comes right out of the Bible, Ephesians 3.21. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, literally to the age of the ages. That same term is also used in the Septuagint in the Old Testament, Daniel 7.18. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever, to the age of ages. This age of ages, I believe, is the culmination of the ages. The regeneration mentioned by Jesus in Matthew 19.28. Remember when he referred to the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory? One commentator said, quote, The eon of the eons refers to a crowning eon of another which precedes it. The final and greatest of all eons. Well, that's the perfect age following the millennial age. At the bottom of Larkin's chart, if we go back to the ages chart, he labels the creative ages, and I already referred to this, alpha or beginning, and the closing to the omega or the ending. And all of this is under the umbrella of time. There's no eternity spoken of here. Only time. Well, that brings me to our third point. Now, don't get scared because the third and fourth points are extremely brief, especially the fourth point. What difference does it make to translate ion as age and ionius as age-lasting? Ah, this is exciting. Number three, age-focused saints taste the powers of the age to come. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and notice tasted the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Look at the special phrase here in the verse. Tasted the powers of the age to come. What does that mean? Well, to taste in this context is not merely to take a little sip and nothing more. It's to swallow it down because the same word is used of Jesus in Hebrews 2.9, who tasted death for every man. And Jesus didn't simply take a sip. He engulfed it for every man. 
and so with tasting the powers of the age to come. Incidentally, the Greek word translated powers here is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. You say, what's this all about? Well, this is a believer who seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and thereby experiences life for the ages or abundant life now. Now, perhaps one of you would argue back does a person have to be age-focused to taste these powers? Couldn't they merely focus on eternity, you know, the old way of thinking? Well, let me answer it this way. Do most Christians truly focus on preparing for the kingdom? Are most Christians focused on the next age? Not hardly. Or do they believe that getting a ticket to heaven and a get-out-a-free card from hell is what's important? So much of Christianity thinks that there's nothing else to do. Just kick up your feet and relax and wait for the rapture. How wrong is that? In fact, didn't most of us believe that way until we got serious about the kingdom before we realized that we must qualify to rule with Jesus? It's true of me. Shame on me. But thank the Lord. Oh, I'm so grateful. He's shown us that preparing for the kingdom is essential. And preparing for the kingdom is to be age-focused. Because of that age-focus, we have been privileged to taste the powers of the age to come. Glory! I want to keep tasting, don't you? <laughs> I don't want to stop. Now we understand more of the finer details, how that all the scriptures are focused on the ages. There's no focus on eternity per se. And that really ought to excite us because we can really get consumed with tasting the powers of the age to come. And to that end, God gives us some special verses. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Look at verse 6. And raised us up together and made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Woo! That's exciting. Tasting the powers of the age to come is realizing that you're seated with Christ in his throne seat. There's power there. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And Ephesians 2 and verse 6 says, you're seated with him. There's power there. And most of us don't even begin to appropriate that power. How many Christians don't even realize it's there? What a shame. Tasting the powers of the age to come is appropriating his delegated authority over the demonic realm and spiritual warfare. Oh boy, that's a whole subject we could talk on for a long time. Tasting the powers of the age to come is experiencing his victory and power and love in greater and deeper ways. Tasting the power of the age to come is living out your eternal life, that is your age-lasting life, to the fullest so that your Christian life is abundant, not lackluster, as with so many. So much more could be said here, but I would urge you to just meditate on this point. It's quite profound. What does it mean to taste the powers of the age to come? You could spend a lot of meditation time on that one. 
One very brief final point, and this is the shortest of all. What difference does it make to translate ion as age and ionius as age lasting? Now this one might shock you, but it's the logical conclusion. If everything I said thus far is correct, and you gotta check me on it according to the scriptures, don't just take it because I said it. Compare against the word of God, which I believe I've done for you, but you need to do your own homework too. But if that's all correct, then look at the logical conclusion, number four. What difference does it make to translate ion as age and ionius as age lasting? Number four, a proper biblical emphasis on ages gives new meaning to the term eternal punishment. Hmm. Are you ready to consider the ramifications of this point? If the word eternal does not mean endless, if it actually means age-lasting, then what does that mean? What are the ramifications for condemnation and punishment? And what does it say about the love of God? Now, we don't have the time to get into that one tonight. That's a big can of worms. But I think it's the logical conclusion of where we've gone tonight. Well, here's what you need to wrestle with in this message, and we're done. As a believer, are you focused on this age or the ages to come? For too many years of my life, I was focused on this age. And I didn't even realize it. I was a pastor focused on this age. Shame on me. Ah, oh, thank the Lord. He taught me differently. Here's another question you have to wrestle with. Do you have a ticket to heaven mentality? Well, I'm saved. Everything's great. Mm, be careful. Or do you see your eternal, that is your age-lasting life, as the means by which you can enjoy abundant life now and thereby accrue rewards to be enjoyed in the future ages to the fullest extent so that God is ultimately glorified through your life. That's what it's all about. In my opinion, that's the whole storyline of the Bible. That's the theme. That's where it leads to. Those who say the theme of the Bible is the crucifixion of Christ haven't gone far enough. The theme of the Bible is the glorification of Christ along with his bride. Those whom he handpicks because of their faithfulness to him to reward them with crowns so that they can be co-rulers. So I wonder tonight, are you tasting the powers of the coming age? Let's bow in prayer. Lord, stir us up with these truths. We ought not be content with where we are spiritually. And there's going to be a tendency to want to argue and fuss about this or that. But Lord, we just need to take your word as for what it says. Apply it to our lives. And make a difference in our lives. We know it will. And then we, may we make a difference in this world. And may our Father in heaven be glorified. We thank you for our time now and bless the one to follow in the fellowship in Jesus' name. Amen.